Hello and welcome to the second episode of Tailoring in Conversation. In this series, I'll be interviewing tailors from all around the globe to gain a better insight into their worlds. My guest for today is Claire Emerson. Now, you may know Claire from her years at Edward Sexton, or you may have seen her work on Instagram. She's currently working as a freelance tailor, and so if you've recently commissioned anything from Geeves and Hawks, Tom Sweeney, Dobrik and Lawton, Livingston and Sons, chances are that she was the artisan behind your jacket or waistcoat. During our conversation today, we'll be talking about her journey into tailoring, her apprenticeship, and the transition into freelance work. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Claire. Welcome, and thank you so much for making time. Um, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've, I've been exceptionally busy, but um, I'm hoping yeah. over the next few months, with things starting to go back to normal, it will smooth out a bit and I'll have some more free time. <laughs> okay. Now, when you say back to normal, do you mean that, you know, we're away from COVID, like well away from COVID or back to normal as in you've had a very busy period and it's been abnormal for you and you're trying to balance that out? Um, I wouldn't say me being busy is abnormal, but it's, I've definitely felt the pressure a lot more since the tailoring shops have reopened. Okay. Um, okay. So I'm hoping... I think there's been a massive influx of customers because obviously they've had nowhere to go and spend their money for the last however long. Um, And they have important dinners and stuff to go to. So, um, yeah, I think they've just swamped the tailors. And in return, um, Mm. I've been a bit overwhelmed recently, but not not in a bad way. It's it's been good to be busy again after the quiet period during lockdown. (laughs) Okay, well, I can imagine. Um, Claire, I, before we kind of like uh, dive into what you're currently doing, there is something I, I, I want to know. Who, who was Claire? Who was the 10-year-old Claire? A 10-year-old me. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, 10-year-old Claire, she was into sports. Um, I used to be into football. Okay. Uh, I used to do horse riding. I did that right. for quite a long time. Um, I was always more into like cars and action man and things like that. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I don't, I think, I think I'm still quite similar in some ways. And mm. yeah, I, I, it's, it's a difficult question to ask because it was answered because it's quite a long time ago, but um, yeah, she, she was, she was very creative as well. Like she liked mm. drawing and, painting and anything like that and yeah anything anything my dad used to do he used to get me involved as well so whether it was up on the roof working like on the tiling or in the loft replacing the insulation or anything really he used to get me involved so I kind of was I grew up with the attitude of I can I can do anything I just need to learn how to do it first okay okay would you say that uh, most of the things you're interested in were because of your uh, environment and the influences you had from your peers, your family, your parents, or was it something that you felt from within and you were like, man, that action man thing, I need to have that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I think it's probably both because obviously your your family have a huge impact on you and who you turn out to be. But yeah, yeah. I was always I was always more interested, like my sister would have like, 
Barbies and stuff like that. And I was always into, like, my brother would play with cars and action man. And I'd be like, this is way cooler than Barbie. So. Okay. Okay. Did you, because you, 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 you say you, you did football as well. You did horse riding. Yeah. So um, is it, were you doing that because you had some sort of just like, you know, you just wanted to be active and you had a lot of energy or, or was there something like, uh, a competitive drive behind it as well. Like, you know, I want to show what I'm doing. I want to make a mark. Um, how, how was that for you? I, well, I think for me, it's, it's movement. I've always been really mm. into physical things and just, it, it, it has such a huge impact on your mental health as well, like being able to go out and do sports and stuff like that. And yeah. obviously there, there is some competitiveness to it, but it was more it was more like participating and experiencing new things really that drove me mm. into things like that. And even to this day, I I always like, I think that's what appeals to me about tailoring as well. It's it's a movement based job. You're not sitting at a desk all day. You're constantly moving around. And yeah, yeah, I think I think it's one of those things that's kind of transferred from like everything that I've done as I've grown mm -hmm. up it's just something it's been a key part of everything I've been involved in yeah yeah I can imagine well okay well everybody I think in the tailoring industry so far that I know of knows you so uh, what I don't know is how do you go from football to horse riding to action man to helping your dad you know uh, on something that you're doing on the roof there um, to tailoring was that like a natural evolution or was it like something happened to you and you're like whoa this is a new discovery um well when i so i did art at school and okay. um it was kind of natural for me to I, art and sport obviously um mm. it was kind of natural for me to progress into one or the other and i really enjoyed art so i went to ravensbourne and did a foundation year where you kind of covered like all the bases there was like yeah. fashion design everything yeah. um and then after I was a bit I knew I wanted to do something creative but I didn't know what and mm. um, my friend actually told me about the Newham tailoring course which I went along to just oh right. so you you did Newham as well yeah okay you're okay, <laughs> okay. You're, well well I mean what what year was that when you did Newham 1970 uh, <laughs> <laughs> It seems like it. It must have been. I was. Oh my goodness. I think I was nineteen, and I. Okay. So, like, I don't know. <laughs> I think I, it might have been before that. I'm trying to think. This is why it's good to have LinkedIn because you can go back and be like, "This is the date I did yeah, that." Yeah. It's it's well over ten years ago. We'll put it that way. Okay. Okay. That, well, that makes sense. Yes. Yeah. So um, I, I started there and mm. um, I just, I loved it and I, I didn't know how to sew or anything, but um, I just, yeah. I was determined to learn how to do it and like seeing the end result of what you could produce, it just, I don't know, it just kind of hooked me and I was just like, right. that's, that's what I want to do. So, so um, were there other, like, did you have an idea that you would like tailoring or was it like, look, there are a couple of crafts. I'm just going to try some of them, see what happens. And is that how it went? Yeah, that's basically how it went. It's, it's been like that with most things for me, like even trying new sports and stuff like that. It's kind of 
it something sparks my interest and I think okay I'm going to pursue yeah. this for a while and I'll yeah. see where I end up I might enjoy it I might not but at least I can say I've tried it and I know for sure yeah so what 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 was it specifically about tailoring that you were like I can do this for a living I, this is I'm comfortable doing this for a living I think it was I think it's the creativity and like I said before it's the movement as well it's just having the freedom and mm. it, it's it's um it's almost my the, my need for perfection as well drives me I want to improve so okay so you're a perfectionist as well I am but I'm working on not being so much of a perfectionist because it can drive you to destruction so I'm yes, trying to find a yes. healthy balance currently <laughs> okay yeah well that it is a wise thing to do so you do Newham and then obviously after Newham you're thinking of well I may be able to do this for a living so how can I do this more professionally how did that process go from student to perhaps uh, you did an apprenticeship you mentioned so mm -hmm. how, how did it go from student to apprentice from apprentice to um, freelance code maker which you are doing now um, so when I finished Newham, I had mm. made some contacts on Savile Row because you spent a few days there each month. Um, so I actually went to one of those contacts and said, look, what, what do I do now? I know I want to be a coat maker. How do I get mm. into it? Um, so he sat down with me and he gave me a list of tailors to send my CV and a cover letter to. Yeah. And um, he suggested Edward. And I didn't know who Edward was. <laughs> okay. Um, so yeah. I sent them all out and Edward was the first person to get back to me. Yeah, and, and for the viewers who are listening, you mean Edward Sexton, right? Yes, Edward Yes, Sexton. yeah. Yeah, so he, he kind of, I asked him who Edward was and his background and he, he said to me, like, like, go for it if you can, if you yeah. can get this, this is where you want to work. So I, I went along on one of like the hottest days of the year and <laughs> tried to play, play it cool like oh yeah I know what I'm doing here and so <laughs> we, we had a good chat and he asked yeah. me if I he actually kind of caught me out as well because he said to me do you know who I am and I said I was just like um no <laughs> <laughs> which is the last thing yeah. you want to say because you want to look like you're prepared for it yeah and, um, definitely yeah yeah we we got so well and he kind of he said just like go away have a look and see what I've done and see if it's something you'd be interested in so um, yeah. yeah I started there and then um, I was there for 10 years I went from being okay. apprentice to having my own apprentices and mm. then um, I finally decided to branch out on my own set up a workshop and work for myself okay my okay how how did you find the difference between being a student who you know just does a bit here and there into going into a workshop where there is like real money and real clients involved and like real mistakes you know they they really shock you and and also having some sort of at the time pressure that every tailor probably faces um, was that kind of like a shock how, how was that how did you process that transition I, yes, I would say at the start it was a shock because when you're in like when you're in education, they don't they say to you, "Oh, this is this isn't quite right, but you mm. need to do it this way." Whereas when you go into tailoring, is this is wrong, and <laughs> you're an idiot. It should be done this way. <laughs> right, so, right. And also, you have like you said, you have um, timeframes to work for as well. So yes, yeah. you're trying to learn, but you're also under a lot of pressure to get it done right. For within that time frame so yeah it, it went from being a really relaxed learning environment to like a mm. quite a 
stressful but in some ways I kind of thrived in that environment because I'm quite a stubborn person so if I can't do something it's just going to push me more if if I've set my mind on something nothing's going to stop me so even though it was a struggle to transition between the two um I I, I did enjoy it (laughs) okay well it's it's interesting you mentioned like you're stubborn and you know if you can't get something you have to do it until you get it right in that transition period where you were kind of like okay this is the real deal now obviously you get a lot of pressure some of them you don't even expect you don't know for example that you're going to be working till like eight o'clock maybe nine o'clock and you're like oh can i have the keys for the workshop can i you know things like that mm-hmm. was there any moment that you thought i'm still in the beginning of this i haven't committed fully this is like not what i expected uh i'm gonna consider maybe doing something else i don't think this is for me like this is too much pressure this is too much like because uh, you know tailoring is labor intensive as well you know your, your neck is gonna hurt your back is gonna that you thought like no this is not what i expected was there any difficult moment that you're like maybe not for me i no i don't think that thought ever occurred to me it was more the fear of not being good enough mm. um okay and that's more of a confidence thing but um I never thought for one second it wasn't what I wanted to do I just hoped that one day I would be good enough to do it if I was persistent and tried hard enough okay so you felt somewhat like I'm comfortable here I just need to learn the skills need to speed up need to do this and then I will be able to just kick ass with this hopefully yeah (laughs) yeah 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 okay okay so you, you you were there for like 10 years how was your apprenticeship like uh what was the structure of the apprenticeship what was it like you work a lot on small pieces that you know you can make a lot of mistakes on was or were you like thrown into like the ocean and be like hey make up this four part with like five pockets in it and do the linings like this and then figure it out on your own how was kind of like the structure you had there um to be honest like it, it was it was good um for most of like the beginning and the middle um, it was like, okay, you need to learn how to sew. So you're going to sit here until your back aches and yeah. you've got dead legs and your fingers are sore. But at the end of those six months, you're going to be able to sew. So just keep yeah. going. And it's and I'd practice in my spare time as well to try and advance a bit further the next time I was at work so I wouldn't be stuck doing the same thing. But it, yeah. it was like, okay, you've done that. So here's some imbrus. This is how, like, show me how, they showed me how to do them. And then it was like, mm. okay, so until these are good, you're not going on to the next stage. So right, it would just right. be practice, 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 practice. And then it's not until, like, even up to learning collars, like facings and collars, like a lot of instructions. And then at the mm. end, it got to sleeves and it was like, okay, here's a pair of sleeves. They need to look like this. Go and do them. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. you're just like, sorry, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I can imagine how that goes. Well, did you, uh, did you uh, have other apprentices around you that were like at the same level as you, or were you the only apprentice at that time? Uh, so it was, it was just me and Henry uh, who was teaching me, and then yeah. later on we took on a few apprentices. So then I could pass on what I had learned to them. And then right. it could take those jobs from me and I could learn the next stage. So it's kind of like a continuous chain of learning. Ah, okay, okay. So you well, learn something. Well. It, it does work well. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. Okay. Would you would you say that that was if if that wasn't there, that maybe it took longer for you to kind of like get to where you wanted to, or or was it did not make a difference? Yes, definitely. Because um, obviously you have the tailor at the top, and he's going to be doing the last bits of the like the last stages of the jacket. And right. if it was just me at the bottom, I would would have just been swamped with inbreast lapels, machining right. up line, it, all the all the beginner's jobs, I, I wouldn't have been able to progress on to the next stages. So having mm. those apprentices, it, it was kind of key. Okay, this is, well, this is a very interesting part because what, what you're saying essentially is that you need to have multiple apprentices because otherwise one apprentice is kind of like just repeating the, maybe the first half of the jacket, which is like the less complex and difficult parts, although mm -hmm. those are also difficult. But then if, if that apprentice keeps on just repeating those things and just the master tailor does the rest, they won't, well, it takes them a lot longer to go there. So probably it's like a good idea for shops to have multiple apprentices. Uh, yeah. Would you would you agree? Yeah, I totally agree with that. In, in yeah, reality, yeah. the, the master tailor is not going to turn around and go, do you know what? I'm going to pad lapels for the next month so you can you can move on to the next stage. <laughs> can you imagine any environment where that would happen? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah, that would be the end of the world probably. <laughs> okay, okay. Well, so uh, yeah, cuz uh, most of uh, most of the tailoring houses, you know, they have uh, a capacity and they they don't like to take on too many new apprentices, but it seems that it's uh, beneficial for the apprentices to have other apprentices. So if yeah. there are apprentices out there that think like, I want to be the only apprentice because then I have no competition, what you're essentially saying is like, no, it is actually good because then you guys can move on together and kind of like just shift tasks and, and, and continue the progress. Yeah, well, competition, first of all, is healthy. If you don't have competition, then you'll never improve. You, mm. There will be no drive to improve. Yeah, so yeah. I, I think that's really important but also you can learn from the people that you've just taught to do what you were previously doing and like it's it's a continuous circle of learning really it's mm. I, and that way you learn to work as a team and you can pass the skills on but they can like as I said like you can learn from them too so yeah. you, you need to be in an environment where there is competition but not unhealthy competition okay um, okay like maybe you see someone do something differently and it turns out really nicely and you go, Oh, like mm. that's, that's um, interesting. Like why does yours look like that? And mine looks like this and you can have a discussion about it. So yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. obviously if there's unhealthy competition, it can cause some really bad. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, 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 here's the thing. I, I think you, you have a plenty of experience being an apprentice, also working in house, working freelance, uh, for, for anyone who would want to enter a workshop, let's say, as an apprentice, and they want to know whether things are going well for them or like there is plenty of good competition or there is even bad competition, how would you define that? Like, how would someone know, okay, I'm in an environment where there is bad competition and I should probably think twice before staying here. How would you kind of like describe that? I think... Um... I mean, having experienced some of it, the it can affect your confidence massively. Right. And, and if you're going home feeling like you're not good enough and you're mm. never going to be good enough, then yeah. 
maybe it's a toxic environment you're working in because people aren't encouraging you. Okay. Um, so maybe that would be something to reflect so encouragement upon. is definitely key. Like if, if you never hear any words of encouragement, then you should probably see some red flags if they're not there already. Yeah. Obviously, there's if, if you're not putting any effort in and you're yeah. making loads of mistakes and you're making holes in things, then it, there is a reason why you're getting negative feedback. But if you're trying your hardest and you're giving it everything yeah. and others around you, you can see you're like producing the same work as others around you, but it's just negative outcomes the whole time then yeah, yeah there's de definitely red flag there <laughs> mm. yeah yeah well that, that's a, that's a very good thing because um i think most people who do go into a workshop and our industry has and the fashion industry is kind of like notorious for uh, a lot of people doing work experience but then eventually maybe not getting the job or their their, their apprenticeship is delayed for way too long and they're like they've been apprenticed for like 10 years you know so it's like oh it's gonna look good on your cv but you know why don't you just keep on padding colors or something like that um and so what you're saying is a, is, a, is, a, is an essential thing now um obviously once you do become a competent tailor and you're like a pro and you know the cutters and the and the people trust you with 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 the client's work mm -hmm. everybody knows that there has to be some sort of a structure to your approach to work and this is a, an area that most tailors um, develop later on as they are working. So like everybody has a system for their own. Like some people yeah. start with, you know, I've heard like someone makes an entire half of the jacket and then goes into the other half. It's like they start <laughs> twice on the same, right? You, you know who I'm talking about, I think. <laughs> so, 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 so that's one system, but then you also have people, you know, who kind of like use pocket makers or they do this first or that first. When you were going through your apprenticeship, were you, were you shown like the different techniques and the different steps outside of the context of the system? Or were you actually taught a system and you just reproduced that system? How, how did you kind of like go around that? Because they're like, yeah, you need to learn the basic things that are just all separate from the whole but then eventually you also need to figure out for yourself okay what is going to make me the most efficient person in this workshop or in this kind of like uh, environment how tell me a little bit more about that because i think that's a very interesting part to talk about well i was i was taught one system and mm. um i i was i had to follow that system right so um once i had finished i kind of then thought, okay, like this is the way I've been taught, but yeah. I know it's not necessarily the only way that you can do things. So I then started to experiment and it was trial and error and seeing what worked and what didn't really. Yeah. Um, so that, that's kind of how I progressed. And even now I still, I still challenge what I do. And I go, I mm. think every so often I've done this this way for quite a long time. And is it necessarily the most efficient way? And mm. Does it does it have the best outcome? Are there possibly other ways I could be looking into to produce this? So um, yeah, I, I do I do feel though that to have a starting system is kind of key because yeah. it's so fast what you're learning that you need yeah. to kind of have steps to follow. But um, once you're ready to step outside of those those areas, you can. But um, 
like that's what, another thing I was always taught. It was as you go along, you need mm. to be thinking two, three steps ahead every single time because right. the, the actions that you take now are going to affect the job later down the line. So it was more, it was learning how to process all that in my mind as I'm working mm. and constantly be thinking about other things down the line as well and what right. the outcome's going to be if if I do something slightly differently. So mm. I still use that now. It's it's like okay, if I change this way of doing something, what's what's going to happen? like three steps down the line and sometimes I change stuff and I go oh well that didn't work and okay. then some yeah, yeah. sometimes it's like oh okay like that that works a lot better but yeah. um I was also lucky as well because I had other tailors come in and then they would be working mm -hmm. on something and I'd just be like right. oh can I can I just watch you do that so I'd just stand there watch them do that and probably annoy them with all the questions I was asking yeah, but um, yeah. then I'd go away and be like, okay, so this person does it that way. Maybe mm. I can incorporate the two together. Right, right. And when you when you think of something like, oh, uh, maybe I should try something new or maybe I should merge these two steps or like replace the steps with something else. Do you do that even when things are going well? Uh, or do you only do that when things go wrong and you're like, okay, I need to rethink this part of what I'm doing now. Uh, for the future or, or whatsoever how do you kind of like decide I need to try something new while you already have a, a working system I think I think it's more if I'm doing something and I'm not a hundred percent happy with it mm -hmm. um, I'll then start to reflect upon it and go okay some something here needs to change I don't have the answer right now and I need right. to try out a few different ways but um, it's just yeah. it is trial and error but if mm -hmm. I then see, this is where Instagram's quite good as well, because you can see other yeah. people's work. And if yeah. I then see even something that I'm happy with, if I see someone that does something different and I go, oh, like that could actually work more efficiently or better than the way I do it. I'll, even if I'm happy with the way I'm doing it, I will then give their way a try and then see see where I end up really. I might end up like merging the two, like I said before. And yeah. also I have um, quite a few tailors that I talk to on a regular basis. So Obviously, if you're not in tailoring, it's quite a boring discussion to be, ha to be having. But just like talking about velvet facings and stuff like that, yeah. I'm like, oh, I, I do it this way. How do you do it? And then it's like, oh, yeah, I tried it once this way and it didn't work. So it kind of, yeah. there's, there's so many ways to learn. You've, you've just got to be really open, though. You can't just be like, mm. okay, I've learned it now. I don't need to learn anymore. My way works and it's the only way. There's, mm. there's so many ways to get the same outcome and you just yeah. need to try some of them. Yeah. Would you say that one of the things that, um, well, how should I phrase this? One of the things that makes you a, a real tailor is, is you having had enough time to not only learn that system that you were taught in, uh, originally, but you also had enough time to evaluate new things and kind of like shuffle things around and be like, look, I not only know one system, I know like maybe three systems or... 10 compartments of different systems and so I've had enough time to kind of like let that just boil a little bit uh, until it's kind of like matured let's say. Mm, I, th I think time is key like I, I think uh, I think my coat making apprenticeship lasted about five years in total which is slightly right. longer but it wasn't it wasn't just coat making I learned a lot of other things in that time as well so Hmm. I, I had 
I had the time I needed to develop and that's important because I don't think something like tailoring is something you can just rush and just hope that you're going to pick it up really quickly as you go along it's something that you need to develop at your own pace yeah what what sort of other things uh, apart from tailoring did you kind of like learn that are very I mean I guess if you work anywhere you learn things aside from the from the actual profession the technical part but were there things that you thought like if I know tailoring, but I don't know this, then I can't be a tailor. Um, that's actually a good question. Um, I think I it was good to learn about the different types of fabrics because obviously they influence uh, my work a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, but also, it was I, I learned how to. It kind of. It kind of gave me more focus in a way because I, with Edward, I learned how he runs the business and I saw that side yeah. of it and like how much everything costs and how you keep the business running. And I also got mm. to meet the customers and deal with the customers. And so mm. I learned lots of different bits here and there, all related to the tailoring. They didn't necessarily affect how I make the jobs, but it was... Yeah it was important for me to see all those things and like even watching Edward cutting and things like that. Um, yeah. it was all areas that I tried out and areas I thought, no, no, I'm still, I'm still on the right path. I, I want to, I want to be a coat maker. And like, mm. whilst I was there, he showed me how to do like trousers and waistcoats and skirts and right. were, like really random things I ended up working on. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, it's, it was just, it was really vast, but yeah. it, it all paid off in the long run. Yeah, no, I can, I can perfectly imagine. So you did your apprenticeship for five years, you said, and then you carried through for another five years, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, what did you learn in the next five years after, once you've, your apprenticeship was done? Was it just like a case of fine tuning what you were taught? Uh, and what mm -hmm. you had learned or were there specific things that you can only learn once you've got the basics out of the way um so after i finished i i, I moved on to teaching more apprentices which obviously helped me as well because that helped me improve my tailoring but right. um how, how I, did that do how did it help you how did it yeah how did teaching others help you to improve your tailoring well, it gave me different different perspective on the way I do things and yeah. and therefore I could kind of try out new ways as well. Like if, if I had someone that I was teaching, because everybody learns so differently. So yeah. my my way of teaching didn't always necessarily work. So I had to try new ideas and try out yeah. different methods and see if it worked for them. And also I benefited benefited massively from teaching them too. So yeah, yeah. it was it was, it worked out, it worked out really well. But um, I think at the end of your apprenticeship, I don't know if it was the same case for you, but mm. it's the, the last stage is the sleeves and you're kind of just thrown into it. Yeah. Uh, everything else has been so precise and detailed. And then it's just, yeah. it's literally like, oh, here's a pair of sleeves. Like they need to look good and you need to go away and do them. Why do you um, think that is? Why, why do you think that this, like, hey, we're going to show you every single detail of how to make, let's say, a facing or a pocket, but when it comes down to sleeves, just 
go ahead and do it, please don't bother us, you know? How, wh why is that, do you think? I think a lot of it is to do with um, a lack of teamwork. I think right. it's the people cutting them don't always necessarily know how to to base them in and to sew them mm. in and to right. make them look good. And um, therefore, sometimes there's a lack of communication. Yeah. Um, it's, it's quite difficult. <laughs> like, no, I... There's, I think, yeah, it's just, there's definitely a lack of communication there. And if, I think if people worked together a lot more, um, then everyone could benefit a lot from it. It's, re it's a very fine thing you say, communication. Uh, do you, because, you know, I've, I've experienced this before, where it's like, you know, you hear tailors say, oh, this cutter has been giving me sleeves for like 10 years. I've made them look good and the cutter thinks they can cut really nice sleeves, whereas it was me kind of like <laughs> fixing the problems. Like, <laughs> but it's, it's a funny thing, but I've heard that from like so many tailors yeah. that it, it, it just seems to be like one of the realest things, at least here in the UK's tailoring industry. But I've heard it from like Italian tailors, from, I've heard it in Russia, like anywhere. So when it comes down to communication, well, first of all, do you think, um, uh, how much communication do you think there should be um, between the cutter and the tailor? Or do you think that if the cutter just does everything according to how the tailor would make it, everything would go well? Or, or do you think, no, what, regardless of the greatness of the pattern and the greatness of the tailor, there should still be communication? Or what, what's your take on that? Ideally, I think you need to work really closely with the cutter. Right. You, you can't have an amazing end product if there's no communication. And mm. ev everyone I work with now, like I, I communicate with them. And if I have a problem, I tell them. And I, I always say to them, if there's anything you want me to do differently, please let me know. Like I can yeah. take criticism as long as mm. it's constructive. I can take yeah. criticism all day. So I think, yeah. I just think there's a real boundary there between mm. like, not with me in my current situation, but there seems to be a real boundary there between tailors and cutters and sleeves. And mm. I, I don't know if it's a pride thing or, right. I mean, at the end of the day, sleeves are difficult. If you right. have an eighth here or there, it can, mm. it can ruin a sleeve and there's so much to take into consideration. But um, people like David, he's, he's really good because he based in his own sleeves. Like, he yeah. does try out his own sleeves and that's why his sleeves fit. And like Andrew, he, he like, when he gives me sleeves, I have about five notches to match. So I know that he's gone over every inch of that sleeve and he's checked it to make sure it fits in the armhole. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, I just think it's, I think that for some reason there is a massive boundary there. And mm. because of that, there's a serious lack of communication about sleeves. Yeah, um, yeah. But then also, I've heard of cases where tailors have said this sleeve doesn't work and right. the cutter just assumes that it's the tailor's fault. But, right. but then <laughs> I'm, sure, I, I'm also sure it goes both ways. So yeah. I, I think it's people's pride and hmm. yeah, it's just, it's, it's a real boundary that somehow people need to get through. But I, yeah, I mean, 
you just have to be open-minded and you have to be prepared to communicate and unless people are willing to do that it's yeah. not going to improve do you do you think that it is essential for a tailor to know how to cut and for a cutter to know how to make or do you think like nah you know if, if as long as they communicate well they don't need to learn each other's kind of like craft as if there is good communication or do you think like no regardless of communication a tailor should know the basics of cutting and a cutter should know the basics of tailoring i think you can definitely benefit from both ways right. like um especially cutting as well i think you need to have an understanding of how the garment goes together and all the little things that the tailor does to mm. make it fit the body because then yeah. you can take that into account when cutting as well so I think it is important to have a basic understanding and for it to go both ways to, to have a really good end product. Would you say that there is plenty of opportunities for a tailor to learn cutting during an apprenticeship or is it like a bit difficult, mate? Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> where I was with Edward, like if, if there was problems, I used to go in and we used to talk about it um whereas i can imagine that some of the big tailoring houses you're a coat maker and that's what you're going to mm. learn you you don't need to learn anything else so um i don't know where they would find the opportunity to learn about cutting so right yeah i think i think it does need to be addressed i don't know how but um mm. i think also time is a big issue as well because i think quite a lot of people are rushed through their apprenticeship <laughs> apprenticeships because they have to do it within a certain time frame so yeah if they were given a bit more leeway then possibly they could work with a cutter and spend time but a lot of the time it's, it's they have to use their own initiatives to go and do stuff like that don't they and it's not going to be in work hours it's going to be in their own time yeah. so it's it's i think it's difficult really yeah okay what uh, the, um what was i going to ask um oh yeah what did you found the most absolutely dreadful, difficult, impossible thing when you were learning in, well, I would say learning in those 10 years because you had two different stages, you know, one is the apprenticeship and one is just fine tuning things and perfecting everything you know. What would you mm -hmm. say was like the absolute most difficult thing ever for you? So when I was learning, um, I struggled to see what the cloth was doing. It, I, I, mm. I was told you'll, you'll see it, like you'll get an eye for it. But so what do you mean what the cloth was doing? Where? So when you're using it and manipulating it, you kind uh -huh. of look at, look at the grain and you can see what it's doing and where it wants to go. And that's kind of key for a good finished product. But yeah. when you're first starting out, you're kind of so overwhelmed with everything. You can't. Yeah. You can't possibly take in any more or see any more. You kind of just got blinkers on for what you've been taught. And yeah. then like Henry would say to me, Oh, can you see what the cloth's doing? And I'd just be like, No, no, I can't I can't see what the cloth's doing. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And then after a while I was just like, Oh, oh, like I can actually I know what you're talking about. You're not making it up. I can actually see what the cloth's doing. Mm. Um so that that was a big thing for me because I feel like when I hit that stage things became a lot easier after mm. um and then after it was definitely sleeves <laughs> sleeves <laughs> I, definitely yeah yeah when i qualified it was just the point that i would just get so frustrated and yeah. it's i find with sleeves as well if you keep sewing 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 
you kind of do go blind to what's yeah. going on with the cloth. And yeah. sometimes you need to put them down and you come back to them the next day and you'll baste it in once and they'll go in perfectly. Right. Um, but but when you're, you don't have a lot of experience with sleeves, they can be the most frustrating thing on this planet. And mm. like the armhole run can affect them and the crown mm. and the fullness. And you, you're just trying to learn so much in one go that it's, mm. it's overwhelming. And I, I just had days where I just like went home and I just I actually cried because I was so annoyed that I couldn't get it. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, so I went to like a real dark place with sleeves, but I came back yeah. out the other side and now I'm just like, yeah, yeah, bring them on. I'll take it. Just give them yeah. to me. I'll yeah. take them on. So so, so how, how did you go through that knowing that, man, I, whatever I do, it seems just not to work. And it just, I don't know for how long I'm going to be like this. I don't want to, you know, get jacket after jacket and just like burn out, you know, to, to ash when I get to the sleeves. What mindset did you have to adapt to be like, you know, just do it, but in a way that, you know, you know you're learning? Like, how did you know this is going to be okay? Um, I think at some points I didn't, to be honest. I was, I was just like, like, this is the last stage and I've, I've come so far and I know if I'm persistent, eventually it's going to pay off. And I know it's not going to be an overnight thing and therefore I just have to be patient. And if I am frustrated to the point that I feel like I'm, my head's going to explode, I need to put them down and come back to them later. Right. And yeah, it was, it, like I said, it took me to like a quite a dark place through the sleeves, but yeah. when I started to see the light at the end of the tunnel, I yeah. just, I just focused and just got on with it. But it, it was kind of good as well because when you get to the end of your apprenticeship, you're kind of like, oh, yeah, like, I know what I'm doing now. Like, bring it on. And then you get thrown sleeves and you're like, oh, my God, I'm absolutely <laughs> rubbish. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's, that's very painful because you think like, yeah, you know, now I know everything. But okay, um, so you were there for 10 years and now you're not there anymore. You're doing freelance work. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you go from being in a place where the only responsibility you have is the work you're given mm-hmm. and now changing that, going into maybe, I don't know if I should call it less comfortable, but definitely a different challenge, let's say, mm-hmm. to be like, hey, I'm going to work for maybe multiple houses. Uh, I don't know exactly how many jackets or waistcoats I'm going to be making this week, this month. Uh, mm-hmm. But I'm willing to take on the risk to go freelance. Like, how do you make that shift? What happens exactly? Um, well, the way I saw it was at the time running the workshop at Sexton's and managing three trainees. Um, mm-hmm. I kind of thought, well, obviously, it's it's a big risk, risk to go self-employed because I have to make sure the money's coming in because I have a house to pay for and other yeah. things to pay for. So that was a bit scary. But then I thought I have the skills I need to plan the workflow. And mm. if I'm only managing it for me, and I can manage the deadlines that they hopefully won't be changing too much, it should be an easier step for me. So right. for me, the main worry was having enough work, having enough okay. work to keep to keep myself going. But yeah. um, 
but then I just made sure before I left I had the contacts I needed and the work coming in and I was sure that it was the right time for me to take the leap. I mean, it, it didn't make the decision any easier and it still was utterly terrifying. But yeah. I, I kind of forced myself, like, generally, like, my compass, my sense of direction. If something makes me feel uncomfortable, I generally mm. know it's the right thing for me because it's not because it's the wrong thing. It's just because it's something new and I'm yeah. not great at taking big steps, like, stuff. Obviously, like, my ta- my start of the tailoring career was a big step, but yeah. when you come that far in tailoring and you're you're comfortable it was hard to step out of that circle and just be like okay mm. like this I I have this is what I want so yeah. at some point I'm just gonna have to leap for it and do everything I can to make sure it works right right uh, what would you say um you said obviously making sure you have enough work for like continuously enough work as a freelance um were there other things that you were like, oh, I thought I, sh- I don't need to do this, but now I need to do like all these 10 other things as a freelance, uh, which I'm actually, I haven't had any training for or, or whatsoever. Um, no, I don't think so. I think my time at Sexton's kind of, it set me up for everything I needed. And the only difference really was I then... <sighs> at Sexton's I was kind of part of a team so Mm. I I kind of when I went self-employed I was representing myself I wasn't just part of a team so then the spotlight's very much on me and my own work and I'm responsible for myself and whereas when you're in when I was at Sexton's I was just part Mm. of a team so I didn't really stand out so as soon as I went self-employed I was very aware that how much people were going to be looking at my work and judging Mm. me to see yeah. if I was good enough to work for them. So that's that's the only thing I did experience was it, it kind of gave me another check on my confidence as well as yeah. to be like, are you are you ready for this? Like is your work good enough? Are people going to want to work with you? So yeah, yeah. yeah that was that was the only thing that I struggled with a bit to start off with and uh, yeah. I'd be working for them and I'd be like like they'd be like, oh thank you so much. Like we're really happy with it. And I'd be like, yeah but what's wrong with it <laughs> is, there, yeah, is, there, yeah. is there something like you want me to do differently and I'm like no, no no it's fine so yeah I think like the biggest thing was my confidence because like mm. I, as I said I was representing myself I wasn't just one of a, like a big team so yeah, yeah yeah that that was difficult for me okay okay so um you not only have the responsibility of the work that you're given but also your own reputation is kind of like what you're saying yeah. there right yeah. right what what would you say? Because uh, this this is this is an interesting part. So you know, if if you're working as a tailor in house, then mm-hmm. there are certain things that hey, if you do these things well, you're not going to get fired, or you know, we're not going to hate you, or you're not going to get shouted at whatsoever. What are the things as a being a freelance tailor that any freelance tailor needs to be able to do well in order to you know work freelance? Uh, what would you say are the things that you have experienced so far to be like very essential? Um, it's, it's everything really. You need to make sure that everything you're doing provides an end product that is up to your standards and up to what they expect from you because it's, it's very easy to 
be cut off from someone if if they don't mm. like your work necessarily they don't have to go to you oh we don't like your work they're just mm. they just won't give you any more work right so, right um, you so what are of, the top what are the top three excuses that a freelance tailor may hear <laughs> um, we, I don't know. We we have no work at the moment. Um, I don't know really. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the top one. It's just, it's just sorry. Sorry, we're really not very busy at the moment. Right, um, right. Yeah. Like, Whereas they're us, pumping us, out photos. <laughs> yeah, is that? And there's like bundles sitting inside. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. I don't, I don't really know what else they. I think yeah, they could just avoid you. Mm. <laughs> they could just ghost you, couldn't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But mm. um, yeah, it's it's you you you're very like you said your reputation like it's everything yeah. when you're self-employed. So you need to make sure that you're not slacking. And yeah. I think when you work in house, it's it's very easy to just sit back and take things easy. Whereas when you're self-employed, you're under a lot more scrutiny. Right, right. Would you say that, well, this is one thing that I've always wondered, is that uh, when you're in a small industry and like a tailoring house has only so many orders per month or per year or whatsoever, um, how do freelance tailors make sure that, um, well, what's the best way to phrase this? So obviously you need to, you get work from, company x and maybe two other freelancers get also work from company x yeah um, how do you usually sense like what would you say is the relation between the tailors that have all the different works they don't really work together but they get work from the same tailoring house how do companies or the tailors themselves balance that out without starting to become each other's enemies it's like hey man you still like 20 clients that I was supposed to be working on. Why are you getting all the work now? Does, does that happen in, in, in the freelance kind of like world? And if it does, uh, how does one balance that and manage that? Well, I don't personally experience it because I, I don't, I'm not in the envi environment around other freelancers. So right. I'm not aware of the other tailors that are working for the tailors that I'm working for. Right. Um, but I have heard of, situations where you have a lot of freelancers or making mm. coats for instance and certain tailors are getting more work than others and it can cause arguments and right. who knows what else and thankfully I don't have to deal with that because <laughs> it would yeah. be a bit of a nightmare <laughs> yeah I can imagine well the the other thing is like how important would you say communication skills are if you are planning to go self-employed um, in order to make sure that you keep the contacts, you know, that you need to keep, but you also are able to communicate. Like one of the things we were talking about before the, the call was like, um, sometimes freelancers are, you know, when they start out, they're afraid to say, no, I have enough work for this month because mm -hmm. they're scared of not getting any more work. But then obviously mm -hmm. that's not always the case. So what would your advice be for like someone who is planning to go maybe self-employed or is already self-employed and is just starting out to be like, hey, it's going to be okay. Don't worry. Like what, what would you say? I think if you're making the transition from employed to self-employed, you need to build up your work enough. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I took jobs on here and there and then it got to the point where I had too much work in my spare time 
Mm. And I didn't have enough work, enough time to be making it all. So that that was the point that I knew that I then had enough work to go self-employed because if it was building up enough that I didn't have enough hours in the evening mm. or after work hours, then it, I needed to take that leap basically and go, right. okay, this is the right time for me. Obviously, don't don't take on one job and go, okay, I've got one job. I'm, I'm ready to go self-employed because if money is an issue for you, yeah. then then you need to make sure that you have the work coming in first just be mm. sensible yeah it's yeah, it yeah. a difficult balance though because when you get to the point that you have enough work self-employed mm. you you there isn't enough hours in the day so you do need to take the leap pretty quickly because otherwise you're just going to be overwhelmed and exhausted right right do you have any apprentices at the moment no i don't Will you have some in the future? Um, for the foreseeable future, no. Um, mm. I still have some of the people I used to work with that come to me for advice and right. always happy to help them out. So I kind of have partial apprentices, but um, mm. at the moment I don't have any any in my workshop with me. At the moment, it's just nice to be able to do my own thing and only yeah. be responsible for myself and. I think it was I was quite stressed at the end where I was trying to balance everything and then having all mm. the trainees. So to have so much less responsibility now, I, I'm right. making the most of it. <laughs> so so would you say that um, one of the things that made you go from, from working in-house to freelance was that you wanted to just make more decisions for yourself, manage things more on your own terms, and also have maybe different types of responsibilities. So now, obviously, you're not responsible for like an apprentice or like two other apprentices. You're more thinking about your reputation, the workload for the next few months, etc. Um, or, or did you think that if you go freelance, you would be able to maybe make more money? What, what were the things that you were thinking about in making that decision? Yeah, I think it was like a combination of all those things, really. I, I wanted, because obviously at Sexton's, I didn't really have my own reputation. I wasn't an individual. So right. I, I did, I, I wanted to people to see what I was capable of doing. Right. Um, but I, I also wanted to be responsible. Like I wanted to have the freedom to work as I pleased, really. And if I wanted to do more hours and make more money, I could. Or if I wanted to work less, then that was another possibility. And I just wanted the freedom to choose the hours that I work and also a big thing for me was the commute as well um, right because I used to waste about three hours a day um going to and from London that's a lot now yeah well, it's a lot it's a lot of time and now I can invest yeah. that time in myself so I do yoga and I also walk the dog for two hours a day so right. whereas that time was wasted well I saw it as wasted time personally because sure. sitting on staring out a window with other yeah. people that are sweating isn't exactly <laughs> desirable is it so <laughs> um yeah now I could I could spend some more time on my mental health and yeah. just generally looking after myself so it's a big improvement would you say all things considered you have a better well let's say a better life uh work life let's say uh, being on your own uh and being freelance yeah yeah I it's it's the it's like night and day the comparison between the two i right. for me 
being freelance is better for me and it's more suited it's it's the lifestyle that i wanted so yeah yeah it's it's ideal for me obviously it's not for everyone because some people like to be around people all day long and they enjoy the commute to london but that was always things that used to really bug me so Mm. not necessarily being around people but (laughs) the commute to london used to get on my nerves and it was exhausting like by the time you get to work you're tired and yeah now my workshop's at the end of the garden so i have a one minute walk to my workshop well that's a very Um, long time there you have (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah i know sometimes i have to take an umbrella if it's raining it's a difficult day (laughs) yeah 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 but it's just like all the external factors as well, like train delays yeah. and angry commuters. And mm. it's, it's just like for your mental health, it's, it's a lot better to just have the freedom of being freelance, really. Who would you say shouldn't go freelance? Um, people, people that are very, I mean, I am quite happy being by myself all day. I have a dog, which keeps me company. Um, and then when I want to socialize, I can go out and socialize, but people that are very sociable in general and mm. like to be around other people, um, yeah. it's, it's definitely not a lifestyle for you because mm. you'll just end up being lonely and you'll want to go back to the, right. like, if, if you like, I think also I like the slower pace of, of working from home as well. But if you're like a more fast paced person and you mm. enjoy the commuting and, like you love London. Like I, mm. I like London, but I, I didn't like being there all the time. Every time I got on the train home, I was just like, oh, like I, I can leave it all behind now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah. So it like anyone that's very sociable and just loves being around other people and is not mm. very good at being independent, I wouldn't yeah. recommend it. Okay, okay, okay. Well, how how would you say? Uh, how would a day? What, well, describe one of your days. How how does a day of work look for you? What what are you like? Do you wake up really early, or do you like? How does it tell us how a day in Claire's life looks like? <laughs> well, it varies a lot. Um, at the moment, I'm really busy, so I'm working a lot more than I normally do. But ideally, I would start work at nine o'clock. Okay. Um, work until lunchtime. And then um, I normally take like a two hour lunch break because I'll go eat my lunch and then I'll go right. for a walk for an hour. Yeah. Um, and then I'll carry on working, work till about six o'clock. And then mm. I get to, because I don't have to commute, I get to do yoga and then I can do dinner. And yeah, it's, it's not a very stressful day anymore. <laughs> but um, okay. obviously it varies if I'm busy because then I have to get up earlier and I end up working later and as opposed to working five days a week, I end up working more. And yeah, it, but then that's also the joy of being freelance is you get to decide what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, it, this is probably something you're not even concerned with at all. But if tailoring became irrelevant tomorrow and <laughs> there, there was no need for a code maker anymore, what would you do? What What would... What would you be think? How would you process that? Because you have some, because you've you know you've built up tailoring skills, and so you have to think of something else. And now, would you try to incorporate some of those skills, or would you think of something else? What, how would you process that? I so I did actually reflect upon this during lockdown because I thought, huh. 
what would happen if I don't have any more work and right. if the tailoring industry shrinks a lot. So yeah. I I did joke with a friend that I could stack shelves in Sainsbury's at nighttime because the pay is really good. Okay. Um, but but I think I would definitely do something creative. I, I'm not sure what it would be. Um, yeah. Like I I. I don't know. I think I would find something that I have an interest in and kind of mm. pursue it from there. Um, I've always been really into like drawing. So, and mm. that was my, originally that's what I wanted to do was to be a fine artist. Really? Um, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Cause I have seen some of your drawings and they're like, they, they look professional. And, and, and so, <laughs> but, but you, what you wanted to be a painter or, 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 or something else? Yeah, just something in fine art. I wasn't exactly mm. sure, but I just, I really enjoyed it. And I think the thing that put me off is quite a lot of it, you have to have really good contacts. And I didn't really know anyone in the industry. Right. So I thought, yeah. well, you're never, you're never going to make it big if, if you don't have the contacts in the first place. And it's a really tough industry to get into. Obviously, yeah. tailoring's kind of there as well, but um, yeah. at the time, at the time fine art kind of seemed out of the two the harder one <laughs> yeah yeah so, yeah yeah maybe I'd, I'd kind of pursue that and see where I ended up but right. definitely something creative definitely something that involved movement because I could never work mm. in an office that, yeah. that's why I joke about stacking shelves because at least that's a physical job as opposed to sitting in front of a computer all day like I could yeah, never yeah. do that so yeah I don't know it would be it would be interesting to see the type of person I ended up being, but do you think that do you think that the skills you have in in well you've built up in fine arts, let's say drawing and things like that, have they helped you with what you're doing now, or or do you see no relation at all? No, I think it's it's the creativity, isn't it? It's a transferable yeah. skill, and in fine art, you you're looking for perfection as well, which is also in tailoring and. It, I think it is quite closely linked and it's it's really rewarding when things turn out how you wanted them to. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think they are very close, mm. which probably if I wanted to go into fine art, I'd probably drive myself crazy trying to perfect drawing because yeah. having not done a lot over the last few years, I'd, I'd be like starting as an apprentice all over again. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Well, well Claire, I, I, I think... Uh, I have one more question for you. I mean, I, I have I could go on for like hours uh, talking, <laughs> but but uh, I have one more question. Um, everybody who's seen your work knows that you are far beyond capable of pretty much making everything, but it it didn't happen just overnight. And so I'm sure you've had a lot of moments where you had to make a lot of mistakes and fix them again and kind of like go through all the difficulties. What would you say is one of your most memorable mistakes uh, or perhaps even the most disastrous, if you have any, uh, that, that you can share with us? I have, um, when I was an apprentice, I made a massive hole in some expensive cloth and that the first time I, I did it more than once. And the first time I did it, I was absolutely <laughs> devastated. <laughs> I like the I like the part where you said I did it more than than, than once. It was like, <laughs> well, 
Well, the thing is, when you're apprentice and you're under pressure and you're mark stitching <laughs> and you don't have a lot of time, you kind of yeah. you, you're like you're constantly pushing yourself, aren't you? Yeah, so yeah, every yeah. so often, like if your concentration slips for just that second, you've got a nice triangle in in the cloth, right? And and it's always in the place that is like you can't move the cloth, you can't move the pattern. So yeah, yeah. Like, oh wow. But um, yeah, I've I've like. I've made loads of mistakes like I'm far from perfect and but that's the thing with tailoring is you have a problem but you have to learn how to fix it like yeah and also when you do learn how to fix it it's really Mm. rewarding so yeah yeah yeah, I'm I'm far from perfect and Mm. still make mistakes but it's just learning how to deal with them and to not have a meltdown (laughs) yeah yeah because because I I think that's the one of the things that uh, I personally noticed once I got kind of like started out and 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 went through whatever I was going through was that um, there is a lot of times that you get really angry with the work and it's like you just want to like tear the whole thing apart and if you don't manage to balance that and be like relax leave it there come back in two hours or whatsoever if you don't do that then you you probably will die at a very young age. Um, <laughs> no, uh, re- really, and 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 so I've noticed that once I mastered a little bit of that and be like you know just take it easy, leave it, whatever. Um, it affected other parts in, in you know in my life as well. And so you know when something happens, you know it's just you have a different view. You view it as in like oh just leave it there for like two hours and then whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you feel the same? Yeah, I think that's key. Like, the more frustrated you get, the less likely you are to achieve what you want to achieve. So mm. you yeah. do have to know when to stop and know how far you can push yourself and be like, okay, yeah, I'm going to put this down and I'll come back to it later because yeah. I, like, I need to sleep or I like going for a walk is amazing. You can solve so many problems whilst walking. So yes, that's yes. one of the things I do. But um, yeah, it's just it's knowing how far to push yourself because you, you don't gain anything out of it. Like if you, if you stopped, go for a walk, come back and start it, you'll find that it would be a lot easier. Whereas if you spend the next three hours trying to fix whatever it is or trying to yeah. make whatever it happen, you, you're not going to gain anything and you're going to come back the next day and look at it and be like, well, that's rubbish. So yeah. then you're going to have to do it again anyway. So you, you yeah. benefit a lot from just putting it down and coming back to it later makes 100% sense. Okay, well, Claire, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I wish we had more time, uh, but I, I, I'm sure that in, in a few months' time, we can get together again and, and talk about maybe other topics because there is so much to discuss. Um, I would like to thank you for your time and uh, I, look forward to see, I look forward to see more of your work and uh, <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Thank you very much, Claire. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. And that was Claire. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. If you'd like to see more from Claire, you can find the links to her Instagram and her website in the description of this video. Now, we didn't mention this one thing, but it's important for me to mention this, that Claire does also do one-to-one tuition. So if you'd like to know more about that, simply visit her website or send her a direct message on Instagram. If you have any thoughts or comments, please let us know and we sure hope to see you again soon in the next episode. Until then, bye-bye.